Thank you very much. Good morning. It feels like a long time since I've been here, so it's really nice to be with you. Um, we're in a mini-series called Home at the moment. If you were around last week, you may have heard it introduced, but if not, I just want to summarise a little bit what we're trying to do with it. But if you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 2? Ephesians chapter 2 will be there for the morning. Um, we're doing a little mini-series on the biblical vision of the church and understanding how the church functions as a home. And at the start of last week... I asked you a little thought experiment. I said, imagine you had to explain what the church was to an alien who had no context for what the church was, but was familiar with other institutions in Britain. How would you describe? What institution in Britain is most like the church if you didn't know what a church was? Would you say it's a bit like a club where everyone's got a common interest in God? Would you say it's like going to the gym or like going to a shop or like it's a company or it's like a charity that just has sort of godlike bits as well? Like, which, what would you do if you were describing to an alien, well, the church is kind of like that, but godified? Like, how would you do that? What, in, what institution would you use? And I, my suggestion was that I think we would want to hinge our answer on the family and the temple of God and say that actually the church primarily is like a family. And it's like a temple. In other words, it is a home for people, and it's a home for God. It's a family. It's a home where people come. It's like a very large family, and it, but it's a family because it's a temple. It's a home for God. It's a place where God makes his home, and that's the reason why it's a place where people find a home as well. And if you try and do one without the other, it doesn't work. You try and have a temple for God that's not a family, and you find... It's just a group of people praising, but with no horizontal love expression for others at all. But similarly, if you say, yeah, the church is just one big family, and we don't really care whether or not God's there, it doesn't work at all, because the whole reason for people gathering is taken away. The church is a home. And I suggest fundamentally it's a home for God. It's because it's a home for God that it functions as a home for people. So it's the fact that we are the, this is the temple of God right here. And that's, almost, that's primary, and it's because it's a home for God that it can be a home for all of us as well. So according to Scripture, this right here, right now, and this, I, don't just mean, I don't mean alone, this is the only place in the world, but this is the home of God. This is the place where God lives. This gathering of believers on a Sunday morning in Lee in September, this is where God lives. And that's a radical claim, and it's something that will sound, might well sound, if you're not a believer in Jesus at the moment, it probably sounds pretty exclusive and maybe quite arrogant. I guess it might. And I think if you are a believer in Jesus, it's worth bearing in mind that a lot of people who, do, who are not might think, this is a very arrogant thing, very exclusive claim to say that of all of the places on earth and all of the temples people have built, you're claiming that you are where God lives and not others? So it's worth just thinking about that for a moment. I, I make a couple of comments about it, actually. One of them is to kind of admit, yes, Christianity is exclusive. Christianity is very exclusive. Christianity excludes lots and lots of other beliefs. In fact, it excludes all other religious systems of belief. Christianity excludes Islam, for instance, just like Islam excludes Christianity. Christianity excludes atheism. It just does. It doesn't don't exclude atheists. You're an atheist today. Well done. Welcome. It's wonderful to have you here. But the belief system of Christianity and the belief system of atheism are not compatible. And actually, all communities are exclusive, aren't they? If you think about it, a vegan community is going to exclude eating meat. 
Right? That's just what communities do. They say, we do these things, we don't do those things, and that's one of the ways you tell us apart. So, yeah, in a way, I'd admit Christianity is exclusive. I don't believe all religions are equally valid. In fact, I don't think you do either. Last Wednesday, you may have seen this in the news, last Wednesday, archaeologists in Peru discovered a site where they excavated the corpses of 227 children who had been sacrificed to the gods to change the weather. And this is hundreds of years back, okay, before Christianity reached that part of America. And this picture of you know, what sort of things they were excavating here. I mean, it's this, they've, 227 children sacrificed to change the weather. And it's interesting to me that actually, as soon as people hear that, they say, no, of course not all religious beliefs are equally valid. I don't think anybody thinks all religions are equally valid. I think people say, no, some, we should exclude that sort of form of worship. And what was fascinating was in the article I read this, it was a German, I don't know why it was, but it was a German news outlet I found it on. The, the concluding lines of the article were these. Evidence of ritual human sacrifice, they wrote. This is not a Christian source at all. It's a mainstream German new, uh, media outlet. Evidence of ritual human sacrifice has been uncovered all over the world, including in pre-modern Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. But then it said, the practice is specifically referred to and banned in the Hebrew Bible. And then the article finished. I just thought it was quite refreshingly honest and interesting comment. They're saying, actually, this is very common in most parts of the world. In the Americas, in Africa, in Asia, all around the world, people have done this. They have sacrificed humans to try and propitiate the gods, except that it's specifically identified and called out and said, you must never do that in the Jewish scriptures. And I thought that was quite refreshing and encouraging in a way, just to say, of course, religion excludes lots of other beliefs and practices, and they should. So, in a sense, to say this is the temple of God is a very exclusive claim. At the same time, or if you're going to make an exclusive claim, you might as well, you might as well make an exclusive claim that is as inclusive as Christianity. Right? This, the claim that this is the temple of God is an exclusive claim, but it's the most inclusive sort of exclusivity you can have. And the reason I say that is because access to most other temples in most of history has still been somehow based on your sex or your race or your background or your social status or your tribe or your language or your geography. Except this one. Right? You want to get into most temples in most parts of the world, it will have some basis in your, who you are, in what you bring to the table as part of your heritage. Except in Christianity, where God, as in the text we're going to read in a moment, where God has specifically ruled out dividing up who gets to approach God in his temple on the basis of anything except repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only criterion for entry. It's the only reason any of you are here. Not because of what we, where we come from or how we qualify because of who we are innately, but because of something God has done in Christ. And whoever we are, whatever background we're from, we've trusted him to save us. And on that basis, and that basis alone, we become the temple of God. It's the most inclusive sort of exclusive religion you could imagine. So we're going to read Ephesians chapter 2 and see, I trust, why that's true. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Therefore remember... That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope 
and without God in the world. This whole section, he's talking to Gentiles, which I imagine is almost all of us, if you're not a Jew. He's talking to you. You guys, us, we were outside, strangers, aliens. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of God. The church is a home for God. This is where God lives. And this, I think it's a beautiful passage. And in the last four verses in particular, Paul gives us three pictures of the church which are really vital to understanding who we are and what the church is supposed to be. Now, Paul, if you, if you know Paul well, you'll know he loves threes based on the Trinity. He's always finding ways of expressing truth in groups of three built around Father, Son, and Spirit, and he does it right here as well. He talks about us being members of the household of God in verse 19, a holy temple in the Lord, the Lord Jesus, verses 20 to 21, and a dwelling place where God lives by his Spirit in verse 22. A household, a temple, and a dwelling place. And each of those three images, although they overlap a lot, they're all saying this is God's home, they overlap, but they communicate slightly distinct things about what it means to be the church. And so I want to look at each of them and start with the idea that we are the household of God. Households were different in the ancient world than they are now. And by the way, in what I'm about to say, I'm not saying that this is, wasn't it wonderful back then. In fact, I suspect for most of us it wouldn't have been lovely to live in an ancient household. But just to say this is how it was, and we need to understand that context so we get what Paul meant when he said the household of God. In the ancient world, households were typically much larger than most of us live in today. Most people here probably live in a household unit of somewhere between one and five or six, maybe seven, but it's quite unusual for English households to be much larger than that. In the ancient world, you might have a lot of people in your household. Right? You'd be rare to live on your own, rare to live with just one other person. A household might include children, parents, grandparents, servants or slaves, their children, other people. And so households might range to quite a few people from different, some of whom are related to you and some of whom aren't. And at the head of that family, much more authority vested in this person than there would be in probably any family in Britain today. But at the head of the family was the senior male, the paterfamilias. He was the the big cheese. He's He's the head honcho in the family, and he had a lot of authority in most ancient households relative to the way it functions today. And in exchange, of course, women, children, and slaves had far fewer rights than employees or women or children do today. So it's a very different dynamic. It's not like the democratic 
largely democratic sort of culture that we assume in the ancient world, the head of the household had a huge amount of authority vested in his right to say what he wanted and do what he wanted. So, for instance, last week I told a story about how my dad met a single mum at work, through work as a lawyer, and came back and spoke to my mum and said, I think that we might, I think we should take her and her daughter into our family for a year or two. And that's what happened. And that's a decision that they made together. And in fact, they probably spoke to us as kids about it as well. I don't remember it, but I was quite young, but I wouldn't be surprised. That's, that's what most of us would do. We would talk about it with our spouse and our children if we had them. And that's how you'd make the decision. Well, in the ancient world, that's not the way the, the head of the family would probably function. In the ancient world, I would say, I want this person in my household. That's that. I want to buy a slave. That's that. Again, I'm not saying that's okay. I'm just saying that's how it was in the ancient Greco-Roman world. I'm going to get that person. I'm going to adopt a child. I found an orphan. I want to adopt that person. I'm going to get that person into my home. And he could just turn up one day and say, by the way, everybody, we've adopted a new child. And the mum or the brothers and sisters would probably not get any say in it and might not even expect to have any say in it. Now, you and I hear that and probably think, that sounds like an awful way to live. How on earth? Most of us would see that from the perspective of the mum or the brothers or sisters. Are you seriously telling me that one day some random person I don't know could walk into my household and become part of my family and I have no say and they can use all my stuff, take up all my space, break my things? And you're like, yeah, that's what would have happened. But now imagine for a moment that instead of thinking about it from the point of view of the brother or sister or mum, you think about it from the point of view of the child that's just been adopted, who was an orphan, who didn't have a family. And one person comes up and says, right, you're joining my family. On the basis of that one person say so, you are incorporated into the household without any of the other people in it, even knowing who you are, far less having decided to take a vote and say, yes, we're going to have them in. It wasn't a decision like, are we going to get a cat? Oh, some of us do, some of us don't. This was like, one person says, you're in, and you're in. That's it. And the rest of the family has to lump it. And some of them might be quite cross about the fact that you're there. But you have been included by the head of the household, and that's the end of the conversation. Friends, that is what God has done for us in Christ. What the household of God means is that Almighty God can decide to adopt you and include you in his family, and the brothers and sisters who are already in the family might not like it very much. In fact, they might have to take some time and get some therapy to cope with the fact that you're there. But you're there because it's his call and it's his household. So he gets to decide who's in and out, and the rest of the family have to figure it out. Now, hopefully most of us are not so mean-spirited that we're sitting there thinking, you know, that is a real... Shame, because I had my eyes on that particular person who I really want to get, get out of the family. That's probably not how it works for many of us, but, and if it is, please keep it to yourself, um, <laughs> but, but in the ancient world that Paul's writing this, there was a very clear target in mind, which is that the Jewish people at this time, some of the Jewish people, and Paul's a Jew himself, but they did struggle with the idea that Gentiles, like most of us, were allowed into the church. Many of them would have been horrified that British people we're allowed into the church with our incredibly pagan ways, our eating of pig flesh and all sorts of other things. And so Paul was trying to say to them, listen, you have to understand that the head of the household has included them, and therefore you've got to figure out how you're going to work together, but you're not entitled to say, we don't want him. It's God's household. He's in charge. His call. If he says you're in, you're in. And he's reassuring the Gentiles and challenging some of his Jewish brothers and sisters. This is the way it works when it's God's house. It's his home. And what he says goes. 
Because we belong to him, we belong to each other, whether we like it or not. Do you see, it's because the church is a home for God that it can become a home for people, whoever they are. The church is the household of God. Paul also says, second, in verse 20 to 21, he says we are the temple, a temple in Jesus or in the Lord. Right? He says we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In other words, we're not just the household of God. We are a temple in Jesus. So notice the little words. We are a home for God. Again, to make sense of this, the image here, right? You've got a, a huge structure and the foundation that's been laid, apostles and prophets. That's the historic foundation. And then Christ Jesus is a massive cornerstone. And he's the one that holds the whole thing together. He's also the one in whom the whole thing is somehow held together. It's a strange image. But to make some sense of what's going on here, it might help us again to get an idea of what the Jerusalem temple that Paul is talking about was like in those days. This is a picture of the Jerusalem temple in Paul's day. And I trust, don't worry about the, the writing, just as long as you can see the picture, it should be okay. That big structure in the middle where the arrow is pointing, that's the holy place. That is at the center of Israelite worship. That is the place where... God lives, the holy place, and inside it, actually, which you can't see there, the most holy place, the place where God sits enthroned above the cherubim. This is the dwelling place of God. This is the place where only priests can go to perform their function, but you and I are not allowed there. But that huge structure in the middle, that's the holy place. Outside that, there is a little court where Jewish men, which is probably very few of us here, maybe one or two, but not many, But Jewish men would have been allowed to go in order to observe what was taking place in the holy place. So you can't directly approach the presence of God, but you're you're allowed to see it, right? You're just outside. Now, most of us, including me, would not have been allowed there, but that was for Jewish men. And that was true up until the Nicanor Gate, which is the area that's marked by the second arrow. That's a gate that separated Jewish men from where the Jewish women were allowed. Again, there might be one or two Jewish women here, but probably not many. And the Jewish women were then allowed into that court outside, which you can see with sort of the, at the sort of far right-hand end of the interior, and Jewish women were allowed there. So you've got the place where God is and where the priests can go. Then you've got Jewish men. Then you've got Jewish women, and they're allowed up as far as the Nicanor Gate and no further. But none of, almost none of us, unless you're a Jew, almost none of us would have been allowed in any of those places, right? Here's where you and me are. We're there. And no further, right? That line is called the Soreg. It's the dividing line between Jew and Gentile. You and I are allowed in the courts of the Gentiles. And so you and I can stand near the line that separates Jew from Gentiles, and we can sort of peer over and just see a wall. And even if we were allowed to cross that wall, we would still, be able, still only be able to go as far as either the men or the women, depending on our sex. But because you're not Jews, you're not allowed anywhere near it. And you stand outside that dividing line, And that dividing line had an inscription on it in Paul's day, which said, well, when we put up our sign outside, it tends to say something like, welcome to church, right? This is what it said in their day. No foreigner is allowed to enter the courtyard and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be responsible for his own death. (laughs) Welcome to church. I'm glad I came, right? That's what it said. Because it was trying to ensure that people like me and almost all of us did not approach the living God casually or at all because we are not part of God's historic people. 
There is a dividing wall of hostility, you might say, that's separating me and all, almost all of us from the people of God and from approaching God in his temple. So if you now pan back and look at the whole temple mount, right? This is now, the image is flipped, but this is now being viewed from the northwest. That's where you and me are, right? Over there in the corner, right? The court of the Gentiles. The rest of the temple complex, you, you're not allowed in, right? You and I are outside, You and I are aliens, strangers, excluded in Paul's language in Ephesians. And if we bear that schema in mind and then go back to Ephesians 2, can you see the radical power of Paul's statement that you and I are are a holy temple in the Lord, right? The force of the language in verse 14. He himself is our peace who has made us both, that's the people inside and outside, both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Says, cross this line, you're going to die and it'll be your fault. He's broken it down. Right? The dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came, Jesus came, and he preached peace to all you who are far off, out there in the court of the Gentiles, and to all of you who are near. For through him, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. So most of us are outsiders, Gentiles, separated from God, without hope and without God in the world. But now, Paul says, we are a temple in the Lord, built with Jesus as the cornerstone, apostles and prophets are the foundation, and all of us growing together into a place where God lives. It's not like God lives in there and you and I stand on the outside, miles away, wondering what it's like. It's that God has said, I live here amongst you, Jew and Gentile together in one holy people. We are a home for God through the cross of Christ. And if you now go back to that picture, I just want to show you one more thing about it. Right down here at the bottom, you'll see a little hill, a mound, you could say. It's called the Hill of the Skull. In Aramaic, it was called Golgotha. And you'll see that the artist has put three little crosses on it. This is where Jesus died. Jesus dies and may well have been able to turn to his left while dying on the cross and see the entire temple complex like that. But do you notice where it is? It's outside. It's a long way out. It's far further outside than you and I would have been allowed to be if we were in Jerusalem in that day. He's not just outside the court. He's outside the temple. He's outside the city. And it is because Jesus was sent outside that you and I are welcomed inside. It's because he was cast out that you and I are brought in. It's because he was driven away that you and I can be welcomed home by God into his temple. The church is a home for God. So we're the household of God, and we're a temple in the Lord Jesus. And then thirdly, verse 22, we are a dwelling place by the Spirit. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A household, a temple, a dwelling place of God in Jesus by the Spirit. That's carefully structured by Paul. And actually, those three images, this is the one that makes me feel the most homely. Right? I think about the ancient household, and I think, oh, sounds a bit scary. And thinking about the temple, I think, that sounds a bit scary as well. But I think about dwelling place, and I go, oh, 
I, get, I know what a dwelling place is. I don't call my home that, usually. Say, hey, guys, so we'll meet me back at my dwelling place at 7 p.m. I don't normally talk like that. But the idea that it's my home, it's a place where I take my shoes off and sit down and crack open a beer or watch something on TV, that, that, that this is God's version of that. This is the place where God rests, where God's this, now, where he sits, where he puts on Netflix or whatever he does. You know, this, metaphorically speaking, this is God's home. This is the place where God enjoys spending time, where he bees. This congregation and millions of others around the world right now is the Spirit's home. The Holy Spirit is also the homely spirit. And this is where he lives. It's such a beautiful, intimate picture. It means you and I are not just included into God's household or incorporated into his temple. You are intimate with God's spirit because this is where he lives. This is his dwelling place. He brings us into his home. It's a place with sofas and toys on the floor and beanbags and lost biros and kitchen tables and cupboards and pencil marks on the door that show how, how tall all of God's children are. That's the image he's using. Do you see? It's his dwelling place. It's the home of God. We are a dwelling place of God. And that intimacy should mark everything about the way that we come together and meet with him on a Sunday. And not just on a Sunday. That intimacy is so precious. It means that when we gather with him on Sunday morning, we are not waiting for him to arrive and hoping he does and wondering if he will. We're actually gathering together and experiencing from the off We are experiencing the presence and the dwelling place of God, whether we feel that or not. Right? Now, I know what people mean when they say we're waiting for God or then God showed up. I do get what people are trying to say when they say that, so I'm not cross about it or anything. But often that language doesn't help us experience the promise of Scripture, which is that he is there dwelling among you, whether you feel like he's there or not. We're not waiting for that to happen. We're not waiting that if Josh does a particularly great job, and then God showed up. God came. It was amazing. God was in. I know what people mean, but the reality is God is dwelling among you all the time, even if you don't feel that he is. And sometimes, because of circumstances in our lives, we don't feel that very strongly. We're not even aware of it. But it's the promise of Scripture that you are the dwelling place of God, even if you don't feel it. That's the joy of what God has done for you in Christ. And that means that, for instance, when we pray, feel it or not, God is here listening to every single word we say. You're in his, it's like you're in his front room, sitting on a beanbag, talking to him. He can hear everything you're asking. When he speaks, you can hear everything he's saying. That's why we take the reading and the preaching of Scripture seriously here. It's why we give it quite a lot of time in our meeting. Because God speaks through the reading and preaching of the word. And so you're listening out as I'm reading Ephesians just now. We're going, This is the voice of God. I'm in his home listening to him speak to me. When we sing and use spiritual gifts, we are expecting him to lead us by his spirit and actually attentively looking out. What what is the Holy Spirit in his own dwelling place, right? His house, not ours. What does he want to say to these people? How does he want to correct or encourage or confront and challenge or strengthen the the body around me How does the Holy Spirit want to do that today? And we're expecting him to do that, whether through us or through others in the community. When we share the Lord's Supper together, you do that every month. When we do that, we are gathering together to the family meal table, right, to meet God who lives here by his Spirit. 
We're not just coming to do something Christians have always done, although praise God for that too. We are coming to encounter the living God in bread and in wine or in juice. We're coming together expecting to meet with him at the meal table where God has cooked us something great from his kitchen. And when we talk afterwards and greet and mingle and have coffee and hang out and then go in and out of each other's homes and WhatsApp one another and all the other things we do during the week, and we are extending hospitality to others, welcoming others as God in Christ has welcomed us. We function as a dwelling place of God. The church is a home. right? We are a home for people, a family, but that's because we are a home for God. A dwelling place, the temple, the household of God. And in both of those senses, which are beautiful, and I love them, but in both of those senses, even now, the church is just a shadow of what it will be. Right? The temple of God, the family of God, is at the moment can feel like a bit of a messy, compromised sort of thing. You, you, your experience of the church, historically, or even just in the last few days, or this morning, for all I know, might have been, you think, well, I think there are still some barriers here. I think there are still some dividing lines between people. You may well be able to see those. And and I know that there probably are some of those things still in us as a result of sin. God's promise is that this is not the end. It's not like the church, this is as good as it's ever going to get, as the temple or the family of God. God's promise is, no, this is a foretaste. There is a lot, in terms of the hostility that is out there in the world, this is a beautiful thing. But it is just a shadow of the reality that is to come when Jesus says, for instance, in John 14... Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. Right? My, my dad's home, massive. So much space. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. The church now, as flawed as we often are, is a beautiful foretaste or an appetizer for that future. But the day is coming when the family of God will be perfectly united and the temple of God, the dwelling of God, will be all in all. On that day, the Lord Jesus will say to you, as he'll say to me, welcome home. This is our foretaste of that reality. This is our outpost of that future. We are a home for people and we are a home for God.